Welcome, Salibonani. Hello, everybody. My name is Tanya. For those of you joining us just today, on this, our third day of this convening, this powerful, magical convening, at least it has been for me, to meet all of you in this virtual space and feel your energy and your warmth from all the corners of our continent. I'm your MC for today. I hail from Zimbabwe, a small town called Ulawayo, and I am based in Oxford at the Atlantic Institute, which is one of the co-partners and sponsors of this event, together with Tecano, Chesai, the Wits University, as well as HSG Global. We are here to have a conversation on decolonizing African health systems and to continue this conversation from the last two days, unpacking the notions of decoloniality, unpacking the notions of an African health system. Therefore, at this juncture, it is my pleasure to introduce my friends, my colleagues, who can officially open day three and share a little bit about where their journey has taken them to this point. I'd like to welcome Lance Luskita, a PhD candidate in health systems and policy research at the School of Public Health and Family Medicine, which is at the University of Cape Town. Lance is a health systems and policy researcher, as I've said, a queer activist, and also a senior Atlantic Fellow for Health Equity in South Africa. And we do invite you to look at the Atlantic Fellows programs by visiting the website, a body of exciting leaders challenging social inequality, health inequality across the world. Their PhD explores health systems and responsiveness to queer users in primary healthcare settings. And we're going to hear a little bit more about that as Lance is one of our fire starters today in our conversation on African health systems. I also want to introduce Sonaz Munshi, who is research project manager and lecturer for the Sheheim Family Bits Program on Social Determinants of Health and Health Inequality. Shanaz is a health policy and systems researcher and an activist with a particular interest in feminist, decolonial scholarship and praxis. She's also an occupational therapist with 10 years of experience serving vulnerable and marginalized communities in South Africa and the UK. She too is an Atlantic Fellow for Health Equity and that is how I believe her and Lance connected. Thank you so much for creating this exciting space for us to connect the both of you. I now hand over to you to officially open day three and take us into the next parts of the program. Thank you. Greetings, everyone. It is so lovely to be here and to wrap it up today. But can we all start again with a deep breath? Also deep breath because I'm tired. <laughs> but a deep breath because it is the breathing that brings us into proximity with each other. And as the world's attention has been brought to the breath, we warmly welcome you to this gathering, a space and conversation that seeks to grapple with the intersections between decoloniality and health systems in Africa. For us, decolonial thinking is a segue to advancing responsive and socially just health systems on the continent. This project was inspired by the Roads Must Fall and Fees Must Fall, African intersectional feminist and queer movements in our respective institutions and communities we are part of and represent. The breathlessness, gasping for air and urgency to breathe of these movements flow within all of us today. We thus situate ourselves in a history of thinkers, practitioners and advocates interested in doing decolonial work on the continent. 
Towards the end of last year, our lungs expanded with fresh air upon hearing about the themes of health systems global and the intentions to curate and generate conversations, taking us to the heart of power, politics, economics, social structures, and technologies. We applied to facilitate an organized session at the Health Systems Global convening. And when the Health Systems Africa Regional Network launched a call for convenings that explicitly calls on decolonizing health systems and policy research as one of the central themes, our lungs found air and we could breathe a little lighter with possibility. We had envisioned a gathering with applied transformative pedagogy that will allow us to have a very reflexive, warm and open conversation where we connect to the visceral, where we draw explicitly on our different sense modalities and knowledges. Our bodies can think and feel and change as we nurture deeper consciousness. We had to adapt to the crisis of coronavirus and with the support of the Atlantic Institute, Tecano, Chesai, and Witt School of Public Health, and many contributions across and from these communities, we have now created an amazing virtual gathering that allows us to dissipate borders and expand our reach, while also recognizing the limitations of gathering virtually such that we cannot touch or hug each other, we cannot laugh together in the same room, we cannot sing and dance in the same pace, in the same rhythm, and we cannot share meals together. Although we have collaborated with people across the continent to increase reach, participation, and inclusion, we deeply acknowledge that we fall short with representing diverse languages on the continent that could have facilitated deeper inclusion and participation from many local contexts. However, this is a starting point for this community and our journey, and we will continue to learn, reflect, build as we go along this journey of collective solidarity on the continent. And this is an invitation to you. This is your space. You are part of this gathering. And this is a warm and serious invitation for you to journey along with us, breathe with us in a world where breathing has become dangerous and brave. I now hand over to Shanaz, who will recap yesterday's session, but also take us into the terms of engagement. Thank you so much, Lance. I would like to reiterate this very warm welcome that we have been cultivating every day to everybody in our virtual room. As we all take a deep breath, overwhelmed with so much of food for thought over these past few days, so much of consciousness that has been brought to our minds, our hearts, and our bodies against the backdrop of all the problems that we have in the world today as we shift our focus towards each other as Africans and bring solidarity back to our ways of rebuilding consciousness. So once again, my offering is the terms of engagement that will guide our engagement over this last day. And in this gathering, we observe values, beliefs, practices that recognize humanity. Every interaction with each other is seen as an opportunity for knowledge building, knowledge creation, knowledge production. Useful to read the world in ways that center people's experiences, which can ultimately inform our processes and outputs from this generative space. It is seen as an opportunity to acknowledge the knowledge that all of us bring into this room as a fundamental learning principle. We acknowledge that we all bring ourselves in every gathering, our ideas, expertise, 
beliefs, our biases, our prejudices, and most importantly, our vulnerability. It is therefore imperative, especially today, to create a brave and a safer space for all of us to share while providing a critical self-reflection on how we share and how we bring ourselves to the space. In our quest to create a catalytic community within the health research, health systems global African network and across other African communities in whatever field you come from coming into our space today, it is encouraged that we recognize difference in values, structures, diversity, and we commit to learning from one another. A catalytic African health systems policy research community can only be created when we are all authentic, empathetic towards one another. This requires us to come with an open heart, an open mind, and open arms, ready to give and ready to receive. So we have some exciting post-convening outcomes that we are hoping for so this conversation can continue and we can breathe more life into the ideas, the efforts, and the energy that everybody has brought over these last three days. So given that this convening is the first of many African decolonial conversations in the field of health, we would like to have some webinars, cross-continental conversations. This morning, we had a first interview on a university radio station, which will be spread to many community radio stations. We also have an exciting global convening organization that will come up at the Health Systems Global Conference in November this year. And we would like to take forward collective knowledges, all kinds of knowledges, and experiences into the written realm, the poetry realm, the art realm, with the support of all of you. So we wish us all a powerful, transformative day. I'm going to now move into the recap of yesterday, which was a really fruitful discussion, and we had a lot of wonderful contributions. So from the conversation, three key critical points and then we will move forward along with the rest of the day. So the first point I think that came up quite clear yesterday is that we need to be aware. This is call to awareness. Awareness of many different things, but mostly the insidious, invisible ways that power operates to make us invisible. For example, Irene called us to think about how even our higher education systems enslave us perhaps even more. Simukai brought us to think about the anticipatory catastrophe of Africa that is written and represented in art, in film, in advertising, in newspapers, in the narratives, in the politics of how the technologies of ideas are floating around and the biases and unconscious biases that continue to be perpetuated and are very visible to us in the context of coronavirus. So the questions are who writes our history? What is written in our history books? And how is the global architecture in our gaze that is still remaining towards the West? And how do we shift the epistemologies and knowledges back home? It's what Philippa reminds us, that we need to go back to the past, to dream into the future, to transform our systems, 
the structures of housing, of education, of economy, of health, and of access to resources. The second one is the question of consciousness. Clara called us to go to knowledge production, that before we go to knowledge production, we need to take a step back and reflect on our values. How brave are we in our quest for decoloniality? How disruptive are we prepared to be? Pascal and Irene asked us. And we were reminded of the quote from Toni Morrison that racism is a distraction. It keeps us from doing our work. It keeps us from explaining over and over our reason for being. And consciousness is an effort to try to move us away from the explaining towards building a new world, building something we want to see ourselves, to writing ourselves into our own stories, which is what the thread of today's convening will take us towards. The last point that I'd like to make is the question of what do we stand for and what do we build? Who do we represent? How do we become more aware of our positionality? And how do we think of who is African, who is Pan-African, and what do we stand for? Thank you so much. Aluta Continua. I hand over back to the beautiful Tanya Charles. Thank you, Shanaz and Lance. Thank you for reminding us and encouraging us and highlighting for us some of the nuggets that we got to hear yesterday and experience yesterday. So as Africans, we like to anchor ourselves to place and we like to check out who's in the room, where we're coming from and what we know about this beautiful continent of ours. So it's my pleasure to introduce Philippa Namutebi Kabalikagwa, who is an amazing storyteller, poet, coach and skilled facilitator with over 20 years of experience. She uses storytelling as a catalyst for community conversations, for teaching and for entertainment. At the center of her practice is a deep listening and she responds to client requests on how to engage in all these things. So please do look out for her in your various programs because as you will have experienced over the last two days, she adds such a beautiful energy and understanding to what it means to be human and African. So Philippa believes that we all need to hear stories and to tell stories and to use stories to shape the world we live in. She has curated performances to activate space within art galleries performed in collaboration with other storytellers and poets, and curated solo performances as well. Thank you, Philippa, for anchoring us through this session on Invitation to Place. I now hand over to you. Thank you, Tanya, the most beautiful Tanya. I love your Che Guevara look today. <laughs> as Tanya said, my job is to warm the space. So, Mulembe Mwezi, Nabe Hoide, Welcome to this space that we have created. I want to start today with the words of Grada Hilomba. Sometimes I fear writing. Writing turns into fear, for I cannot escape so many colonial constructions. In this world, I am seen as a body that cannot produce knowledge, as a body outside place. I know that while I write, each word I choose will be examined and maybe even invalidated. So why do I write? I have to. I am embedded in a history of imposed silences, tortured voices, 
disrupted languages, forced idioms and interrupted speeches, and I am surrounded by white spaces. I can hardly enter or stay. So why do I write? I write almost as an obligation to find myself. When I write, I am not the other, but self, not the object, but the subject. I become the describer and not the described. I become the author and the authority of my own history. I become the absolute opposition of what the colonial project has predetermined. I become me. So we invite you all to, in this time, reflect on one of the things we're talking about is our toolkit and the things that we use in our decolonial process. We are also looking at our continent, Africa, and we are saying, do we know it as well as we say we know it? Africa is not a country. Africa is many countries and many people and many things. We've played with the map. We've looked at a bit at history. And today we're going to bring a few people into the place. Do you know these people? Who are they? Where are they from? Do you know them? Mikhail Ouna, Chinda Andrades, Sylvia Tamale, Aminata Mint El Mukta. Who are these people? What are they known for? Where are they from? <laughs> Anybody else? Mikael Ouna is a queer activist from Nigeria who lives in the States. He's done a beautiful photo documentary on queer Africans in America, in Europe, and the Caribbean. It's called Limitless, and it will be a really interesting thing for you to explore. Chinda Andrades is from the Cape Verde, a famous transgender activist. There was a movie done on them in 2016. You should watch that. Of course, Sylvia Tamale seems to be the one person people know a lot leading African feminist, a lawyer, was the dean at Makere University and has really fought for people who are marginalized, the poor queer people in Uganda, especially with the very harsh laws that Uganda has on gay and LBGTQI people. Aminat Mint El Mukta is a Mauritanian politician, and a woman's rights activist, well-known. I also only knew Sylvia, I will confess, until I did some research. But I think when I started to explore, I really was asking myself, we're talking about this touchy topic of queer, gay, LGBTQI, and there's all these very mixed ideas about that. Is it African? Is it un-African? But you know, I think in a forum like this, it's time for us to really begin to listen to each other and to explore and to be curious. And I was reminded when I was doing my research that there have been in African histories and cultures, men who 
cross-dressed. There's a whole lot of history that we don't talk about. And this is the time for the silences to be spoken about, for us to be uncomfortable and then to work through our discomfort. And I remember when I was a child, my mother was doing a thesis in oral literature in Eastern Uganda. We went to a certain village and there were men who were wearing gabusuti. Now, those of you who are from Uganda or East Africa know that gabusuti is a traditional dress that women wear. And these men were wearing gabusuti and they had a jacket on. And I remember my mom saying that those men are known for being like that. And so maybe it wasn't as strange as we think it is. So we need to do some digging into our history to understand and to see and to know a little bit more. So in case you don't know where Mauritania is, Aminata comes from there, Northwest Africa, and Cape Verde is somewhere off the coast of West Africa. Sylvia comes from Uganda, that tiny little country over there in the middle. Let's get to know our continent better. Do you know all the national anthems of the African countries? That was something I really wanted to ask people, but not today, next time. Next time we get together, we'll see how many national anthems we can recognize. So our invitation today is to just remind you that we listen with curiosity, that you speak so that people can understand you because you've been thinking about these things for a long time and we all don't come from the same practices, from the same disciplines. And so can we really listen to understand? Can we speak to help people understand us? Can we be curious about the things that make us uncomfortable? And can we sit in our discomfort and see what happens when we work our way through that? I want to end my welcome session with a poem because we often say in Africa that women are marginalized, but we also know that women anchor us and women hold us. We also know that the arts remind us of who we are. So this is a poem I wrote some years ago. Hey, oh, 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 hey, She will sing to me a wordless song, rich with rhythm and sound, strong with silence. And through this song, I will be. I will sing back to her my wordless song. With my whole being, I will sing each breath, each Sound ripping away the shroud that cradles my heart, rebirthing the woman that I am, rebirthing the woman that I am. She will dance to me the meaning I seek, reveal the lessons that I must know, and my body my body will speak its own language again, swaying hips 
swaying hips, stretching arms, twisting torso. Aha, legs taut and strong. Now nimble and quick, hands weaving a story as they move through the air. I will dance my dance with courage. Find the things that I need to be strong. I will sound my life like she sounds hers. Deep wordless songs of life. And as I move... As I move, my formless steps take shape, making meaning of my joy, your joy, our tears, our pain, swirling away years of drought. Ah, deep wordless songs of life rise up from within, reverberate, resonate rebirth and recreate within, within, within. How does one follow that? <laughs> How does one follow that? We honor you, Sis Philippa. Thank you so much for bringing such a beautiful essence and energy and reminder of how powerful we are, how much magic we contain. Thank you so much. With that room, lovely and welcomed and warmed, it's my pleasure now to begin the discussion which we are all gathered to unpack today. From Paradigm to Praxis, Tools for Decolonial African Health Systems and Policy Research. So the big question we are exploring today is how can we work to shift inherited and ever-present colonial forms of research, of practice, of advocacy, of knowledge production in all the places and spaces where we work and even play. And to help us explore the possible pathways, we will be paying attention to feminist and queer theory and practice from researchers, activists, and scholars who can share insights on ways to really begin changing our way of being and doing and offer us tools and strategies for African-centered decolonial approaches to health and social justice. It's my absolute pleasure to introduce our amazing, amazing panelists, fire starters, fire lighters that are joining us today. I will start by introducing myself, <laughs> which is a little bit unprecedented, but yes, my name is Tanya Charles. I want to also declare that I am a feminist and African feminist activist, and I'm very excited to talk about this, having spent some time working on issues of women's rights in South Africa and in Zimbabwe and connecting hands and hearts with other feminists, and also having gone through the Atlantic program to understand the impact of the economic landscape on women's rights, as well as unpacking queer identities and sexualities and how they intersect at the social, political, and economic level. But that's enough about me. I really want to now introduce Jessica Horn, who is going to be the first of our firelighters as we unpack these questions. Jessica Horn's work 
focuses on co-building knowledge, narratives, practices, and resources for embodied feminist transformation. She has brought this approach to almost two decades of work across donor, governmental, NGO, and movement spaces. Early in her career, Jessica was nominated as a Soros Reproductive Health and Rights Fellow, and she has since worked as a technical lead in creating groundbreaking social change initiatives. In philanthropy, she has worked to design models for UHAI, the first African-led fund focusing on LGBTI rights, and early ideas for Frida, the first global fund for feminists. In a thought leadership role, Jessica pioneered the African Women's Development Fund Futures Initiative forecasting the future of women's rights in Africa. She was recently appointed commissioner on the Lancet Commission on Gender and Global Health. This is but a scant summary of her many achievements. It is truly a privilege to get insights into what she has learned over the years on this topic and to hear and bring her perspective to us all and to illuminate on this topic. Jessica, it's an honor to talk with you, to meet you. I now hand over to you to open this exciting discussion. Thank you. Greetings, everybody. And of course, an introduction like that is always a blessing and a curse because you're expected to be very great. <laughs> and in truth, I am a mother today. My two-year-old has been pulling things off the wall all day. So I'm a little frazzled, but I'll try. I just wanted to say thank you because the way that all of you who've produced this and everybody who's offered their ideas and thinking so far has done it in a way which is so incredible. I think I haven't really been in a space with this much heart in a long time. And I think one of the important things that we need to know, particularly because today is a session about being practical, is that the best way to make a revolution happen is to do it. Revolution is a verb. Decolonization is a verb. It's an action. You can't only break it out and check out what the problem is. The idea is to do something with it. And I feel like in your methodology, you've actually opened space for all sorts of learning, African knowledges, languages, musics, poetries, and it's been beautiful. So what I wanted to do is to just take, it's a little bit of time, but to share some of the thoughts and practices around work that I've been a part of, which is really looking at reconceptualizing emotional well-being and mental health from an African feminist perspective. And so I'll focus on that today. Just by way of introduction to me, there's the formal bits, but to understand a little bit why I'm even here thinking about this and doing work on this, for me, the passion comes from three places. One is my feminism, because I've always been fascinated by embodiment. And I think it's quite a feminist fascination, but in understanding when recognizing that the bodies that we live in are our home space. They're our primary home. And so they're also the space where power is exercised. And so everything we're talking about happens in and through our bodies. And our bodies are also the spaces or the tools that we use to resist, to defy, to imagine, to heal. It's crucial then to think about the embodiment. The second is that academically speaking, I was actually trained in medical anthropology, but I should say I was trained, although I studied in the United States, the professors that I had actually trained us in decolonial thinking. And the beginning point of that was actually breaking apart the history of Western science and understanding the construction of Western empiricism today, of course, very deeply linked to the colonial project, which is a deeply capitalist project, but also to the subjugation of traditional knowledges in the West, to the subjugation of women's knowledges, to the creation of this Cartesian dualism, to the creation of the notion that there is even something that is objective fact that can be sustained and explored outside of politics, which we know is an absolute fallacy. 
The third, which I think had been also described as my work that's really been with people trying to figure out and work through these questions of HIV, sexual reproductive rights, thinking about sexuality and gender identity, and more recently, this work around emotional well-being and mental health. So to begin, when we speak, as I said, about Western or we talk about the decolonization, but we use the notion of Western a lot, I just want to note as I go that it really is a shorthand when I'm talking for a Western knowledge system, which is empiricist, results-driven, Cartesian, patriarchal, and white-centric. And that is the form of knowledge that dominates Western thinking. It's not the only knowledges in the West. And in fact, of course, there's a lot of resistance, but it has also been the predominant way of approaching questions of mental health. Through the two main initiatives that I've been a part of, one is AIR, which is a network of African practitioners that I helped to create who are working on this question of reconceptualizing trauma from an African feminist perspective. And also working at AWDF, which is an African feminist fund, to create a healing retreat, a flourish retreat for African feminists working on the front lines of activism. One of the main things that we had to do is to really begin with the definitions or understandings of mental health and in particular of trauma. And to look back at the history of our now widely shared contemporary understandings of trauma which are very much linked to a very particular history of Vietnam War veterans from the United States Army who fought a very, very brutal war that was deeply unpopular at home. So they came back with experiences of distress, not only from what they had witnessed and done to people, which was horrible, but also the fact that they came back and they weren't considered heroes, which at least would have been some balm on the whole affair. And they were in need of support. They were distressed. It was imperative to create a disease category for that condition so that these guys could access medical care. And so here we have the construction of the notion of post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a very individualized, medicalized, and pathologized way of understanding the trauma that you live with after you have been a part of or experienced that kind of violence and upheaval. We apply this idea of trauma so easily in how we talk about trauma today, not thinking again of how particular its history is and the fact that there's an extent to which it doesn't really resonate to the experiences or understandings or needs in our contexts. So my first contention is that we need to reconceptualize and repoliticize our understandings of trauma, to move away from the idea that the problem is an individual who has gone through what would be normally a nice life, but then experiences one experience that creates distress, and that through therapeutic practices, some argue they can be even short CBT-style intervention, you can make that person better. If you are a Zimbabwean migrant woman living in a township in Johannesburg, and you are suicidal, you are not only feeling suicidal because you are personally having an experience of distress. Your distress is caused by a whole legacy of political economy in the Southern African region, including the colonization of your country. It is created by the experience of migration, of what it means to live in a place where many of your neighbors don't consider you to be a friend or a sister, to the fact that you don't have housing, that you're about to lose the small store where you sell tomatoes, you can't feed your children. And so what it makes us understand is that distress is structural. It's perhaps embodied in individuals in moments and we feel it, but the root is structural. 
So that means that when we're responding to it, we don't only look at the concerns of individual need and really work on building individual capacity for resilience, but we also have to be in solidarity with the struggles for collective resistance and transformation to the root causes of that distress. It's a profoundly different way of understanding this question of trauma. Linked to this is the need to really move away from, again, as part of this whole notion of just seeing these issues as individual, of really this narrow frame on intrapsychic feeling. So to only think about one person and how they feel, but to not understand that one person's distress is actually held collectively. If you think about HIV in the early days when people were contracting HIV, but it really meant a fast death or quite a lot of suffering before we had decent ARVs and all of that. That person did indeed live with a stigma, but very often so did their family or their partner or people around them. Similarly with homophobias, when one person is attacked, it hurts the whole community. It creates fear, it creates anger, it creates distress in the whole community. And so a way of understanding our interpsychic connections with each other and the fact that the healing then has to be also collective. I say this not undermining the individual because of course one of the things that feminists bring is this concern about understanding our subjectivities too and that who we are as individuals also does matter. But what we're saying is that our individualness also exists in a context of some kind of community, chosen community, constructed community or by lineage or what have you. And so we have to really think about modes of intervention that deal with this understanding of the interpsychic connection and interpsychic wellness, as well as just one individual. And I think for some of you who live in context of very high rates of distress and violence, South Africa as a national environment is one of those, you understand what I mean. It's not about one person, it's about all of us healing and finding a way to balance. The other thing is that then that has implications for the practitioner-client relationship. So the first instance is when we're thinking about the direct therapeutic practices, we have to move away from this idea that the therapist or the person providing care, be they a herbalist or a counselor or massage therapist or whoever they are, can be neutral. There's no way to be neutral. If the upset is caused by politics, the response has to be political. So there's no way to be neutral in that respect. You are implicated and in a way called on to be activist and to contribute to relieving the structural roots of this distress. We also then need to think about expanding our recognition of who healers are. Who are the healers? So if activism for prevention, for transformation, is working on the root causes, is that also a form of healing? The care that is provided in the home space, is that also a part of healing? We can again open up a broader sense of the healing ecosystem. The third is that there's a very common understanding in psych professions in particular about this notion of vicarious trauma. So the idea is that then as a practitioner, your clients are almost positioned as a threat to your own mental health and well-being, because the idea is that they will traumatize you. The vicarious trauma idea is that your clients will traumatize you. Their stories, the things they're going through, they're upset, weighs on you, and then it becomes a source of too much stress and burden. In activist space and for anybody who's a therapist, you know that to some extent that can be true. 
But it's also a problematic framing because what it does is it frames people who are already marginalized as a further burden. Not only are they a burden on the government who has to give them support and the NGO who needs to make a program for them and the donor who needs to give them money, but even you, the healer, they're making burdens for you. So in a way, it's quite a disempowering way of thinking about the people that we're in solidarity with to work out, to create better wellness. So there's this beautiful reframing by a group of practitioners in Colombia of vicarious resilience, because they studied practitioners dealing with communities that are around trauma issues and realized that actually there's a lot that we learn from people who have survived or are in the process of managing very distressing environments. There's a lot we learn about what it means to be a human being, what it means to navigate the self inside and outside, what it means to be together. And so the possibility then of acknowledging this vicarious resilience that we also gain in the interaction and in the solidarity that it's not just a burden. So again, these are sort of some of the framings. I've hinted a little bit to the practice, but then to really think about what that means in terms of tools or practices, right? Decolonial feminist practices for engaging questions of emotional well-being and mental health. Well, the first really is that it affects our questions. So many of you are researchers in an academic sense, and you know that the gold nugget of research is the question. Everybody's searching for research questions. Well, it's crucial then for both academics, but also those of us in practice, to begin the questions somewhere else. We don't need to begin with some of these hegemonic Western ways of understanding emotional mental health or trauma as the center. We can begin elsewhere. We can begin with the interpsychic. We can begin with this question of vicarious resilience. We can begin with a curiosity for understanding how people manage this question of dealing with emotional distress in their own context. In the AIR network, we were really interested because all of us were practitioners who were engaging in communities affected by quite extreme violence and civil war. So in DRC, Rwanda, Sierra Leone, Liberia, places like that, South African townships. These are environments where there's very high rates of structural violence, high rates of emotional distress, and very, very few Western-trained psychologists or counselors. But not everybody is on the brink. So they must be doing something to maintain and to build their emotional resilience and to help construct and reconstruct emotional balance. What are they doing? I've recently written about this in an article in Gender Development I can send around. But just to note a few things. One of them is that one of the common practices we noted was the use of collective song and collective dance. I want to note this. It is not that Africans are naturally rhythmic or naturally musical or whatever. Yes, we can be good at that. The women in the communities of survivors using song and dance are using it intentionally. They are doing it with therapeutic intent. It is a technology of healing for them, and they know that. And it's interesting to see then that this use of this technology of song and of dance is quite central to a lot of traditional healing practices, certainly the ones that I've engaged in my own studies. Interestingly, also to charismatic Christian religious practice. And I think one of the attractions of charismatic Christianity in African context is the fact that it actually embodies so many aspects of traditional religion while it also admonishes that as being demonic, but it does actually have in its practice, it's quite similar to a lot of traditional forms of worship, particularly in the cleansing, the exorcism through song and dance. 
A second is rebuilding economic agency. So for a lot of people, again, the structural inequality and the structural violence also means that people don't even have the means for basic dignity in terms of being able to buy food for their families, earn a living. And so we realize that actually for a lot of people, building economic agency is actually a route to better mental health and to addressing some of the distress. We frame that as livelihoods therapy, and it's an area we can think about a little bit more in also radical terms, thinking of the economic dimensions of this and more radical forms of livelihoods. But it's interesting that that is actually quite crucial and central to people's healing processes. Just to be quick then, another piece of it is about how you write and who writes. So one of the things that we did in AIR is to really support practitioners to document their own knowledges and to create citable material, because we know full well that if you haven't documented it in writing, as much as we appreciate orality, to be honest with you, the hegemony of writing is so strong, we also really need to enter there and break that too. So through AIR, we produced a series of films, we awarded grants to organizations to document their approaches, we produced a think series, we produced a piece by Hope and Rudo Chigudu on building organizations with a soul, looking at questions of how we weave well-being practices into the way that activist organizations do their work. Citation practices. We need to cite other Africans, cite African feminists, cite decolonial thinkers, cite different knowledges, include the poetry, the traditional proverbs, the songs, etc into what you're doing. And this is not only in what you write, if you write in a journal as an academic, it's also when you're on Twitter. Cite the people, make these knowledges more common. And that's again, one of the ways that we can help undo the canon that excludes us. Lastly, to think about practice is really one of the most powerful ways. As I said, revolution is a verb, we need to do it. So we need to, in the spaces that we have, as my daughter agrees with me, introduce decolonial approaches to people and also document that process. With the Flourish retreat that we created at AWDF, we had a Beninoise woman who is a aromatherapist, a massage therapist, but also comes from a legacy of Vodun tradition, although she has her own remix in terms of how she approaches that. We have theatre practitioners, we have people who reconceptualize for more spiritual dimensions about what we're doing, and we introduce people to that. And we open up questions of people remembering the well-being practices that were passed down from their grandmothers to their mothers to them so that we surface and we experience and we create spaces where we're doing it. And again, crucial to document it so that also then we can create knowledges that we can share about how to do this in practice. Lastly, just to say that when we're thinking about this decolonization process, we often think about the return, etc., from a feminist perspective, we understand that what we are doing is a remix, wow. right? We're contemporary. We're living today in 2020 Africa, which includes everything at the same time. Our ancestors are talking to us. So is Jesus. So is Kim Kardashian. Everybody's dancing to house music, but that's the truth of it. So what we're doing is a remix, and that is fine. That is fine. It's totally legitimate. So to also just be playful and think about ways that we can construct new ways of thinking and being in practice and share them. And again, remembering the joy. I think one of the good things about the fact that mental health infrastructure across the continent is quite weak is the fact that we have a chance to start with something different, right? We have a chance to actually do this differently. And so I'm looking forward to talking more with all of you and doing it more as well. That was absolutely incredible opening remarks, Jessica. And I was taking notes and thinking through, and I just gave up at some point because you've just provided us with so many nuggets. And I do want to say, would love to read your paper. 
which is called Decolonizing Emotional Wellbeing and Mental Health in Development, African Feminist Innovation. So as we think about tools, there's one right there um, from our very own African sister. So we will include that in our post-event resource. But I think for me, two things that really stood out is that the pathologizing of individual unwellness is rarely attributed to the systemic and structural forms of oppression, of othering, of invisibilizing the lives of particularly Black and African people. And that therefore means that they are scapegoating. When you look at root causes, which you unpacked for us, Jessica, what it means is that we cannot get to the systemic issues that lead to emotional and mental well-being, which means we cannot identify the places and spaces and people including the colonial history that has led to our lack of well-being, that has led to our dis-ease. So I really celebrate not only that, but you pointing out that we are actually innovating collective ways of dealing with this, as you call them, therapeutic devices through song and through dance and other mechanisms. So thank you so much for sharing that. With that said, I would love to introduce the next speaker, my friend, my fellow Atlantic sister, my fellow feminist economics colleague, uh, Masana Ndinda Kanga. She's currently the Crisis Response Fund Lead at Civicus World Alliance for Citizen Participation. She works to ensure that civic liberties are respected for groups advancing human rights around the world with a specific focus on the MENA region and women human rights defenders. Masana is also lead country researcher on a UNDP report and journal article called Forging a Resilient Social Contract in South Africa, States and Societies Sustaining Peace in the Post-Apartheid Area. Previously, she was the research program manager at the Center for the Study of Violence and Reconciliation, where she served on the steering committee of the Integrated Social Crime Prevention Strategy of the Department of Social Development that's in South Africa, and as I said, she's currently a senior fellow of the Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity, which is based at the London School of Economics. She's fiercely passionate about feminist parenting. So some synergy there with Jessica, of course. Queer and economic justice in Africa through the transformation of international political economy. My friend, I am so excited to be in conversation with you today and to hear your remarks on this topic from an economic feminist mother-sister perspective. So over to you and a very warm welcome. Thank you so much, Tanya, and to everyone. It's so lovely to be able to be here. And I'm sad that I missed most of the past two days. I was able to follow online. And of course, like Jessica said, such an introduction is really intimidating, more so for the speaker and following, I think, just such a profound and for me, deeply personal and healing contribution from Jessica. It's such a privilege to be able to be in the space. I apologize in advance. I do not outsource my child care. So I am at a restaurant where there's a play area. So I hope that there's grace for different ways of showing up and these spaces and I'm really happy to be here with you all. I've been sitting with this since Shanaz and I spoke two or three days ago about this convening. Of course, we're in the middle of a crisis, but I think the false perception of that crisis is that it's a new phenomenon. And I think what makes the crisis feel so imminent and emergent and uh, deeply shaking for so many people is because it's a crisis that has also affected the wealthy and that they have not had 
had the buffer available to themselves to hide from really the contagion that has been the lived existence and the reality for the majority of people around the world. And that's quite interesting for me when we talk about crisis and power, about disease and bodies and occupation and sites of resistance. The pandemic has not just laid bare imaginations around a new normal, but in the initial articulation of that new normal, interestingly seeing who it was who was available to speak to this conception of this new possibility, this new reality. And of course, the canon of Black feminists screaming out, we told you so. So I really want to foreground my discussion around social reproduction and how the social reproduction of our feminists has really led to a situation where there is no rest and the detrimental effects of that. I begin my reflections with the current occupation that's being staged in Cape Town at the moment by queer activists who occupy the Airbnb in Camps Bay. The Airbnb is owned by someone who is abroad who uses the property as an investment house. So the property is not occupied on a day-to-day basis, and yet the earnings from that property bring in roughly 50,000 grand or 3,000 US dollars per month to the owner. At the same time, we have this stark reality with our levels of high income inequality and wealth inequality in South Africa, where even for the 1% in South Africa, so roughly 30,000 people, this figure is already above or pushing towards the upper limits of our income. And that there's a whole plethora of properties in this area that are not occupied, that are being used to extract wealth, right, uh, in the name of tourism and investment. I think that This points to a crisis as we see with these queer activists occupying this property that they have been on the receiving end of vitriol, of death threats, of violence, and are now in courts defending themselves after lawyers dropped them. That there really is a crisis of imagination of legitimacy to occupy space that we're facing. And that this crisis of legitimacy is not just a crisis of practice, it's a crisis of conceptualizations of value and who has the right to show up and occupy space and make other people feel uncomfortable. The queer activists have, knowing them personally uh, over the past few years, have in many instances been on the receiving end of violence from the state. Even during lockdown, what we saw was forced evictions, even though there was a moratorium on evictions that had been declared by the president, of homeless, of Black people forced to move again in a democratic dispensation. So when we're thinking of value, we are obviously running into a crisis. And when we're thinking of who has the right to occupy a certain type of space, what is a comfortable space? What is a space with the resources for luxury and rest? What is a space with a view? Then that's a very narrow definition in the public imagination because the idea is that if you work hard, you would be able to access these spaces. And of course, then this moves me then to why it's necessary to deconstruct power, right? And the pervasiveness of homo economicus within our imagination of value of humanity. We see in the discussions of homo economicus that he is typically a white, straight, cisgender man who is normally subsidized by the bodies and the work of others, whether through his spouse or through his employees, that he is able to extract value from their existence and outsource his inconvenience onto them so that he can rest. 
So there is within this conception even of our own resistance that the need to rest, the desire to rest is a luxury. I work very closely with a grassroots activist who's been working with the formal workers in Cape Town, and we've been campaigning for them to be reinstated after they were dismissed unfairly during the FISMA school protests. And we have this fight often around why it's important to rest. And again, you know, it is because in our conception of our bodies and our beings is purely for the purpose of extraction and production, that rest is the luxury. And I love the work of the NAP ministry in helping us reimagine the purpose of rest. So they say that rest is a form of resistance because it disrupts and pushes back against capitalism and white supremacy. It allows us to imagine who gets to nap. I don't know about you all. <laughs> I love napping. For me, nap is part of my resistance, but there are certain sacrifices I have to make nap. There's certain sacrifices, particularly in productivity and unpaid care work, I have to make in order to nap, right? It is a gift to myself. Who gets to play? Who gets to play with their children? Who gets to rest? Who gets to breathe deeply? Who gets to go on walks? And ultimately, in our current, yes, I will share the quote, in our current economic framework of value, and because of this externalization of inconvenience, right, of production, Really, the idea is that for these activists occupying the property in Camps Bay, that they don't have the right to rest in that space because they have not worked hard. We all know the quote that if we measured wages and income and contribution to society solely on hours work, that Black women would be the wealthiest people on earth. And of course, reality dictates that that's actually not a case. So then I want to turn to this discussion on social reproduction and how it functions to extract value, right? So in the process of social reproduction, it also assumes who the expertise, it assumes expertise, and it values closeness to white maleness. There's no denying that. It also extracts rest, time, and options for growth and concentrates this onto a few. And I think in this definition of social reproduction, what we're moving away from is the idea that if we solve racism, we will solve all other ills, right? And this is one of my biggest gripes with male decolonial activists in the continent is the lack of commitment to the feminist agenda as if solving racism is right. But actually there's something at the bottom of that, which is how we value the humanity of those who show up in the spaces and give us a new language. So we see again that this earning straight white man is subsidized by his spouse, by his black worker who is consequently subsidized by a black woman, who is consequently subsidized by a black migrant woman. And this black migrant woman is subsidized by her children who never rest. So Ronkolisitaba writes that when the state fails to liberate black people from poverty, the girl child is tossed with the extra burden of providing. So again, it's not even just a gender issue, it's also an issue of age and power and how that power is exercised on the bodies of those who are deemed inferior in the hierarchy leading to the concentration of homo economicus. I want to also say that I think even in our feminist conception of right and participation and value, that there is a class issue, which is, I mean, having the ability to speak 
speak like I do and to show up in spaces like I do as a function of my closeness, again, to the pedagogy of white feminism that I am taught through the university education system. But there is another type of feminism that exists that for me is even more radical and more profound that even lies within my own lineage. So recently I wrote a book chapter on the necessity of rage in feminist parenting. And if you ask my mother and my grandmother, they'll say, oh, what's this feminist thing? Ah. But in their actions, I learned a rage in feminism that was a deep part of my liberation from cisgender heteronormative misogyny. I saw this in my mother being on the receiving end of domestic violence and consequently deciding to take a picture of her face and frame it and put it up in the passage and say to us as a site, don't ever make excuses for the behavior of your father. I want you to remember what he did to me. Of course, deeply traumatizing, just reflecting on what Jessica was sharing with us, but a deep part of the rage that is necessary for liberation. Similarly so for my grandmother, who is a peasant farmer, her refusal, despite being able to speak English, despite my parents' choice to raise us speaking English to her protest, refusing to ever speak English to anyone, anyone, ever never ever spoke English, not a word of English in her life, not even hello. And for me, these actions are part of like a radical rage in our way of being that demand a legitimacy, whether or not it is acknowledged within our formal systems, whether or not it is given a platform and a theory and a citation, it is legitimate because it exists and it is practiced. So how do we move our practice of radical feminism out of the theoretical into the practice of the embodiment of our beings. So what does this mean for policy and practice? And the COVID-19, again, this moment for me is uniquely interesting, when, especially when we're thinking about social reproduction. And really it shows that if we can never rest, we are forced to choose between survival and showing up for ourselves. Of course, during the pandemic, at least in South Africa, the state started calling consultations and economists were gathering and writing policy recommendations at a time when the world went into panic. And it was not just about who was missing from those conversations, but who was ignored in those consultations. In those consultations, we saw a certain type of blindness to race, to gender, to migration, ability, orientation. Black African women who had done the work of creating the canon, who have this body of work. It's not that there is no canon. It is that the canon is consistently erased. We're completely negated in that process. Also unable to show up to those conversations, never mind the digital divide and access to data and access to computers and laptops, but moreover, the burden of socially reproducing, not just the men, but the intergenerational social reproduction that happens to sustain older activists, academics, etc., to participate in those conversations. And what we ended up with was a recommendation for how the state should engage in COVID-19 emergency protocols that was blind to gender-based violence. Of course, blind to sexual orientation and homophobia, LGBTIQ plus violence, regressing to the very beginning, a type of systemic violence that we had always said is there. So the question is, how often does this happen even before the COVID-19 moment? A new normal is possible. 
But the new normal isn't something that's ushered in in a time of crisis. It's a process of everyday working, learning, reflection, and questioning even in our relationship to homo economicus, how we behave in our social reproduction, having our luxuries subsidized by others. Critical to reflecting on this new normal is recognizing the recommendations of black feminists for a living wage, caps on wealth and maximum wages, universal just health care, educational reform, a change in macroeconomic policy, just housing, a socially just African continental free trade agreement, deprivatization of access to medicine, reform in the policing system, access to humane services for women and children, placing abuse, just jobs, an end to neoliberalism. These are the things we have been saying. What will it take for that I told you so to be taken seriously. And this is the thing that makes me tired because we see that it's come to this point as it does decade after decade that we must mobilize ourselves and put our bodies on the line in the middle of a pandemic just to be heard. I'm uncomfortable with that. So when we're talking about the pedagogy of change and the pedagogy of the oppressed, how are we thinking about equalizing the stakes between those who are on the front lines and those who are extracting knowledge and wisdom for journal articles who may be read by your mom and cited by your friend? How do we move beyond that conception of knowledge and reproduction? That is what I don't know. So I want to end by saying that we need to recognize that ultimately change is in the body of the collective, right? And not this individualized conception of change. And it's not to discredit the work of academics. I'm a recovering economist. I'm a recovering academic. And now I'm just a confused person. It's not even to say I have all of the answers. But I think it's also to bear witness to the exhaustion and be accountable for our role in a community care. It's to recognize the nodes of power and privilege and the process of shared learning that is deeply embedded in love and not extraction and not merit and value rather than to take. Where we are reliant on social reproduction, we have to be aware of how we are moving closer and closer to homo economicus and imagine what we can do to see privilege and work in empathy and justice and equalize the stakes of radical resistance. I hope that at least my rage and confusion helps to contribute to something helpful. And I'm so deeply grateful to have been here with all of you. Thank you. Wow. Thank you so much, Masana, for those powerful remarks. And we just want to also honor you for showing up as a mother and as a professional and as a sister, as a friend. It's really a testament to what we have to do as women to show up in spaces and to deliver and to produce. And I think we acknowledge and celebrate you making the time for us as well as with Jessica. And I think your personal story that you've intimated it as well really is a story about the disruption to family life, the disruption to social production that colonialism and that capitalism has resulted in basically social production being how human life is sustained, who cares, who cleans, who sings to, who nurtures, who consoles, and that the burden does rest squarely with women. And basically the disruption, you talked about the disruption to space, how we have to put our bodies on the line within our own continent, in our own spaces, to have space in which to produce family in the way we conceive, in a way that is resonant with our African sensibilities as queer people, as gendered people, as people gendered as women, people gendered as men, that we don't even have the space to do that. We don't even have the space to rest 
that capitalism has stolen rest and has stolen our value. You put that so powerfully because the impetus is to always be producing and doing and that you even feel guilty about resting when you have those moments because you must be on it, as we say all the time, and how COVID has amplified all of this and given us more work, as you say, to put our bodies on the line, to say, hey, we've told you that the system is broken and now it's even worse. And now we also have to put ourselves on the line to protest at a time when simply breathing in those public spaces endangers us. I feel your rage, sister, and I hear you. And I think it resonates with a lot of us in this space. So thank you. We honor you and thank you for those remarks. So we continue the conversation now with the amazing Lance Lusketa, who is a PhD candidate at the School of Public Health and Family Medicine, as I mentioned, a queer activist, a decolonial scholar, an advocate for the decriminalization of sex work in South Africa. As I mentioned, they're also a senior fellow. And really what we are going to likely hear from the offering that Lance is giving us today is about their exploration of their PhD, which looks at how health systems and services interact with queer populations at the service delivery level, but also how do they deal with how queer individuals provide feedback and how do these systems respond. It's about really looking at the colonized health systems that we've inherited and how do we queer them? How do we decolonize them? Lance is a remarkable individual who's just been awarded the Emerging Voices for Global Health. Is it a fellowship, I understand, an innovative multi-partner blended training program for young, promising, and emerging health policy and systems researcher. It's really great to give you this opportunity, Lance, during this three-day program to deep dive into your work, to reflect a little bit on what we've heard. And also, I'll just take the opportunity to, again, thank you and Shanaz for opening up this space for us. I'm excited to hear more as we unpack how to queer and decolonize health systems and what tools you've seen and what questions you have in this arena. So my dear friend, over to you. Thank you so much, Tanya. And thank you for the opportunity. Masana, I'm always so struck by just your beautiful passion and just reminding us of rage and taking us back to the occupation, taking us to thinking about how do we dismantle systems and are we looking at the right places when we are looking for our tools? Where do we need to be searching? And where do we look towards? I'm just reminded of Stella Nyanzi and the struggle in Uganda. Stella was invited to be part of this space but couldn't join. Who do we need to look to? I think that's the question, that's the reflection. Tanya, I know that we haven't updated you, but an hour before this meeting, Shanaz and I decided to change my input to really not look at my PhD, so sorry for that. But the reason why we changed and tried to think about shifting the conversation and my contribution is because we wanted to take seriously the next steps, to be able to really get us as a collective to reflect on where do we go from here. That's quite important. I think we have an opportunity here and that we should use it. So I'm going to be presenting a little bit on the imagining work, the kind of thinking, nothing set in stone yet, and we are moving, we are molding, we are co-building, we are really trying to weave together the tapestry that Philippa was referring to and the seriousness of the invitation to come and weave with us. 
to sit in the circle and to really work and weave and to be able to take serious that invitation. These are the kinds of ways that we are thinking. We've also been thinking about the tools in our conversations. And I want to start this reflection before I speak about this home or this concrete step for theory and action in moving our work forward, is I want to start by foregrounding that decoloniality to us is at least not an end but rather a means. And that's why we have been focusing on this kind of segue, a process, a lens to multiple ends linked to multiple processes, but particularly with our imagining of a socially just health systems and series of health systems on the continent. And it is not the only means, but a useful one. And as reflected in discussions, particularly yesterday, that for many of us, we need to be brave at chipping away or disrupting. And I'm still struggling with whether we can legitimately dismantle. And what parts are we dismantling? Can we? Both Jessica and Masana's contributions really got me excited to really spark our imagination. What are the possibilities in our imagination to dismantle? And I have hope for us to look at our collective bravery it's also about what has been emerged about these contradictions and tensions that we navigate. I'm also a very confused person, Masana, so I can resonate with you there, but I am located within an institution that I feel was never built for me. I'm from a working class background. I'm queer. I'm black. I don't represent anything. And in fact, I have to chip and strip away more and more of myself to be able to survive in the academy. And so what does that mean? And what is that process of doing? And what does that work look like? What tools are required for not just surviving in the system, but actually doing the work of dismantling? In the conversations that were raised is this kind of in-betweenness of trying to be critical, trying to name invisible power. But at the same time, we need to realign, we need to build, we need to reimagine, we need to transform in very real and concrete ways. I guess when we think about our tools and our reflections, we need to take up the caution. And I'm so grateful to both Jessica and Masana because they really gave us the tools outside of the Western academic canon. They sparked our imagination for rethinking the master's tools. This idea that in order to really disrupt and to dismantle a capitalist, heteropatriarchal, racist institution and various institutions, we really can't call on the master's tools because they will allow us temporarily to beat him at his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. And so the dismantling of the master's house, which is the colonial ideologies, the traditions that are imbued within us, within our psyches and entrenched within our systems, only threatens those who still define the master's house as the only source of possibilities, solutions, and support. And I'm so grateful to radical black feminists that we could look to for the different possibilities for allowing us a different source of possibility, different solutions and different ways of thinking. I thought to try and map out some of the thinking around tools that have emerged over the past three days. And the first is the tools of naming. 
the tools of knowledge, the tools of memory, inciting memory, the tools of concepts, of ideas, of visibilizing, of understanding and analyzing, and in the academic sense, because that's my location, the tools of moving into a disciplinary void, where we come to understand the limitations of our disciplines and interrogate the ways in which our training and our disciplines have disciplined us and interrogating what forms and the way in which we see ourselves in the world and to be able to really resist and demonstrate that relevant and robust theorizations and practices can emerge from the African subject and their consciousness and does not need Eurocentric policing, regulation and assessment before it can be legitimized and substantiated or deemed as meaningful. So it is about this being curious and looking towards and pulling from and developing critical and liberatory theories and concepts, not only from the social scientists, but from our families, from our stories, from our histories, and from each other's stories, from how do we share And how do we move into that space? And so Alalwani gave us a concept as an example of occupational consciousness, which is the ongoing awareness of the dynamics of hegemony and recognition of dominant practices and how they are sustained through what we do every day with the implications for our personal and collective health and well-being. And so it's really about an archive, trying to pool together a collective archive of knowledges. And these archives might not sit within one place or at one particular point in time. The tools of unlearning and relearning, moving away from self-interest and putting the needs of the disenfranchised first and understanding that people are experts of their own lives. And so as a scholar and as a practitioner, How do we move away from only serving the interests of our careers in the academy? And how do we see ourselves as facilitators of social change in and through the research process? And then tools for counter power. And Masana and Jessica both really gave some really concrete tools for counter power strategies. But it's also about the concrete How do we chip away at the financial arrangements, the systemic arrangements, the funding arrangements, the policy arrangements? What are people met with? An example is what happened at Bishu with community health workers. To be legitimately understood that their work is important in the health system and to be absorbed and acknowledged and recognized in the health system, the state's response was militarization and then pulling guns. So what forms of resistance and the violence of the state or the agency of the state to further then repress? And then also reflecting on the tools of becoming and being, which is including the radical forms of love, radical forms of care, radical forms of nurturing, captured and illustrated in Philippa's poem at the beginning of this convening, Love in the Time of Ebola, and looking within, looking within our communities, and looking at self-determination and collective reliance and is about revisiting and understanding and bringing back and centering what the crux and the values of Ubuntu means in the world where our interests and our value is targeted for profits rather over our humanity. For me, 
the question around how brave are we to dismantle is a black box. It's what Pascal raised about, do we throw the baby out with the bathwater? And what are the consequences? What are the implications? But more importantly, what do we dismantle and what needs dismantling and how? What are those strategies for dismantling? And maybe it is that in all of the other tools that I've mentioned, the dismantling is part of that and forms part of that because there are intersections in these tools. I'm now going to move into practically how this kind of space and project moves forward. We explicitly recognize that part of this project and platform that it is an African consciousness project, a project that has Africa as the locus of its enunciation, enunciation, we take very seriously the humanity, the wealth of philosophies and knowledges, the cosmologies of the multiplicity of contexts as worthy of inquiry, as valid and important for our own healing, our well-being and our health. The space embraces an activist, a social movement, an advocacy and a community of care orientation. It is a solidarity project, a home and a space for diverse pathways, connections, networks of opportunity for people interested in taking these ideas and practices and conversations forward. And it's also about making connections with thought leaders and practitioners, with everyday people in decolonial work, decolonial understandings, local knowledges, indigenous knowledges, and connecting it concretely to the health theorization as everyone's space collectively, and to be able to also spark intergenerational and cross-border conversations, looking to Black and intersectional feminist movements, as well as trans and queer movements. We incorporate the importance of arts, photography, videography, poetry, dance, song, laughter in our collective wellness and as a legitimate form of theorizing and praxis. We also hope to launch a virtual space and hold that space, capturing, archiving, curating, theorizing, and connecting, and to also work towards priorities. And these are not necessarily research priorities. They can be advocacy priorities, movement building, and further actions in health and health policy and health systems, including ways in which we can apply some of the learnings and some of the connections that we've been engaging here, and to really go beyond the North American and European frameworks that have dominated, particularly the field of HPSR. So we are not saying that we got it right with this convening. In fact, I think we fell short in various ways, also because it's very difficult work, and it's important to recognize the complexity, the challenges of setting up a convening that seeks to really be part of a disruptive agenda within the global health space. And we are definitely not naive as South Africans and the ways in which South Africa impose hegemony in various ways. And that might have come across in this convening for which we are hoping to do better with more, actually we will do better with more concrete inputs from our colleagues located within other contexts on the continent. But we did try to push the envelope to create a new table for us to feast instead of begging at the foot of the master to be offered a seat or fighting for the crumbs falling on the floor. So that's my input in terms of framing the space.
and trying to understand how do we bring tools and a conversation of tools of how do we move forward. And we hope that in your conversations, you can concretely think about what your contribution could be in the space where the connections are, but more importantly, to radically step forward. Wow, yes. Thank you so much for those provocations, Lance. I think the call for collective bravery really is the theme of the session in a way. There's synergy between you having said that, Jessica having said that, and also Masana having said that. And also to this ask about dismantling colonial ideologies and replacing them with liberatory theories and practices, which includes looking at new places and people and spaces our families, you know, our mothers, which I know is feminists, whether biological mothers or other mothers, uh, really inform our praxis. We nurture those stories. We draw resonance from them. And, and because we've invoked Stella Nyanzi so much in this space, I also just want to call attention to her recent publication, Decolonization and Afrofeminism. And I'll just read a review which says that the book really challenges the traditional human rights paradigm and its concomitant idea of gender equality, flagging instead the African philosophy of Ubuntu as a serious alternative for reinvigorating African notions of social justice. Again, re-emphasizing what is our African sensibility in social justice, in health, and it's leaning towards a collective approach. It's leaning towards looking at tools that don't do the individualizing, that don't do the pathologizing of individuals, but rather turn our minds and our heads and our practices to collective action in order to target the systems and structures that have led us to where we are. With that said, I'm going to ask all three of you to respond to one question. Part of the practice, and you hinted at this, Lance, was to do something collectively, was to come together, bringing as much diversity that we sit with on the African continent, which is not homogeneous, but heterogeneous. But it's not easy to do that. So as much as we're invoking the collective, how do we do that? How do we traverse language? How do we traverse geographical space? How do we traverse issues of sexuality and gender and ideologies which can be so divisive? So acknowledging that you don't have the answer, perhaps can you share with us the starting point? Or at least where do we begin? Who do we begin with? Is it an archive? Is it a person? Where do we start? And I'm going to ask Jessica to respond if that's okay. Again, we're not looking for perfect answers, but really, for me, the collective is not simple. So I want us to complicate that a little bit. I just want to do something which we don't do in activism, which is to acknowledge what we already have, who we already are, and what we're already doing. In activism, we're in constant self-critique mode. It's good in the sense that we should never really rest on our laurels or sort of be satisfied. There's always more work to do. But actually, even what Masana was talking about, about rest, actually has to manifest also in our understandings of self. We're trying. We have to acknowledge that what we're doing is a contribution already. This space is unbelievable. After this, I've noted all the names. I'm going to look up all of the people, find your information, read the things you've written and the knowledges you're producing and the things you're engaging with, and engage it further in my work, carry it into my work. The poems, I've taken them, I've noted them. I will use them and cite them, all of that. I think that we are already doing something. We have already started. And people are referencing Bansubiko. We have Miriam Keba singing as a Guinean, not a South African. She says at the beginning, I was invited by Guinea to the celebration of independence in Mozambique. 
we come from legacy of this work, so it's not starting now. From my vantage point, what I think is useful are a few things. One is that, yes, we really do need reference lists or reading lists or what have you, because we are reading. When I facilitate community spaces, people are also dying for references. People want the content and the references can be as diverse as you've done here. It can be music and all of that. That is very important because, again, we need to know what each other are doing. That secondly, I think we all come from different politics, but we always have to keep working on our politics to be more inclusive. I really don't think if you say that you're about liberation and people's freedom, that you can hold on to your homophobias, etc. It's just a little bit of a dishonest way of proceeding because we have to keep working on it. In the activist spaces, one of the issues I keep confronting is disability and the extent to which I still really don't think enough about the fact that people live in all kinds of different bodies. And so we don't plan for it. I have never thought of learning sign language. When we budget for convenings, do we think about sign language interpreters and physical spaces? Are they accessible? And all the rest, all of us have things to work on. So I think as part of committing to be about the liberation of your people, you need to keep opening your heart further to really embracing who those people are and acknowledging that diversity. So that's a political project. And building the resources, I think African research, there are institutions, there are spaces that things can be done in. And we realize too that the academy and places like that can be very exclusionary. There are other sites where things are happening too. I think we just need to know each other better to network better and really try and invest in African initiatives for change. Because again, when we do it, we're feeding each other. If it fails, we feed each other. It's less extractive. And we're learning from each other as we go. Thank you so much. I want to know if Masana wants to pick up on that. For me, the stakes have become so high. And I don't know if it's sort of the South African, the compounding inequalities that rest on so many people here. Sort of the, the epitome of how capitalist extraction and violence and all of the isms have concentrated into one space. I feel a great sense of urgency for not just my daughter, but for children. I'm becoming more radicalized about my position, which is to say, like speaking to the Baldwin quote, is we can agree to disagree unless our disagreement results in my oppression, right? So I've become a little bit more intolerant, right? And I think that's why I've been writing a lot around rage and anger. I think that there's a role for consensus and finding each other. And this is quite an unpopular opinion, but I think as well, we haven't found a space, I think, even amongst ourselves in the social justice sphere to disagree, right? And to say, actually, you're wrong. Capitalism is wrong. <laughs> Ultimately, if there is extraction and violence and it's coming at the cost of a life, then you're wrong. And I think that's the hard part that I want to transition into. I think the other thing that I, I've started to practice, and of course, being a salaried civil society person who's also like deeply aware of the inequalities and injustice that exist within that space, even within academia, is that the ways in which money and resources work also serve to placate the rage that is necessary for change, right? So we told the line of political correctness and organizational positions. And I felt that a lot in my world of work. But then I think that's part of why this is love work, which is why being more than just the employee, more than just the academic person, being part of a community of activism that pushes us into spaces of discomfort is critical at this moment. Otherwise we will sleep on our revolution, right? 
And ultimately, when we're sleeping, there are people who are not sleeping who will be killed. I know of people who've been killed in the revolution, right? Who've been killed at the front lines. And for me, I want for my daughter to believe that showing up as part of a collective is not about activism points. It's about love. We do this work because we love and we love radically and we love boldly. And our love isn't nice and comfortable. It's built on a rage that in our lifetime, things must change. And I see it's changing, but I don't see it changing conference presentations and <laughs> papers. And so for me, that's been a real challenge of pushing it forward is like I'm implicated in my comfortable choice, but I can't afford to be for what I stand for and what I'm practicing as part of my poesis, my world of work and meaning making. It's not about me. <laughs> that's it. Don't apologize, Masana. Please don't apologize. We are here to discuss the lives and the lives of ourselves, our children, and the world needs our emotions and our anger and our energy. So yeah, thank you for sharing that and reminding us of why we're even having these discussions. It's about people, people we love, even the people we don't love, because we're trying to build an ecosystem where no one is marginalized or othered. Lance, I don't know if you want to comment on the back of that. That was so beautiful from what Masana reflected on. It is also a question comes back to what our starting points are for the work that we do. And I think that's so important when we foreground that it is actually about our people. It's us, right? It's our everyday lives. It's our children. It's literally about we're not happy. We are angry. We are enraged with the conditions of our people. And that's what it is about. For us, that's what drives our work. And that should be driving our work, not papers. That shouldn't be the starting point. And I think that's very important. Thank you so much, Lance. I think we've had quite an incredible session so far. And I just want to honor and thank our speakers. We honor you, Masana. Bringing your whole self into the space has really resonated with us. And our hearts go out to you. We are with you, with our spirits, with our hearts, and we will connect moving forward. So as you step away, carry us, carry our love with you. We acknowledge and thank you. So we are fast coming to the end of this amazing event today and this three-day program. And so I'm just going to invite Shanaz to wrap up or summarize or contain us for a little bit, knowing that we are going to come back together and have more conversation. But Shanaz, as one of the co-conveners, it's just really special to hear how this event has been for you and Lance and to share some official closing remarks. Thank you, my darling. Over to you. Thank you so much, Tanya. And deep gratitude to everybody who's been here over the past three days. It was really encouraging to see so many people returning day after day after day and staying mostly until the end. This has been heartwarming and community building. I think the solidarity, the friendships, the new connections, the new communities that we've all built I'm excited about how everyone has come on board and made the space their own as we invited you to and to really have not only just made it your own, but brought in your ideas, your suggestions, your links, yourselves in a deeply authentic way. Today, I found myself deeply emotional. The contributions from Jessica 
took me home to my own work as an occupational therapist and to also somebody that works in the space of gender violence in a structurally violent community in the north of Johannesburg where many migrant communities live. And as she was talking and speaking about these incredible other ways of looking at the resilience of these women, I could hear and remember and feel conversations that I had with many of the women that are part of my world, a part of my community and part of who has shaped me and made me come to this point that where we are today. She's also helped to interrupt and disrupt and make me deeply think about my own positionality in relation to the work that I do and really think about how I do my work much more responsibly to further the cause of solidarity and social justice that really brings us back to the heart of this project, which is around socially just health systems, health equity, health for all, and bringing our bodies and minds to the space. In the first session, I remember Faisal, Elwani, Hannah, Jean-Paul, even myself, bring about critical issues that brought us to a space that maybe we should be angry about the realities of structural inequality, epistemic violence, structural violence. And here we are today, listening to Masana bring voice, bring emotion, bring out the rage that she feels, that we all feel collectively, and bringing back our attention to the different forms of resistance. Do we resist through convenings and conferences and dialogue? How do we take these knowledges into praxis? How do we recognize that even in this convening, the praxis is here? How do we continuously challenge the canon that has been fed to us, unlearn and find new ways of being? How do we support those who are doing the hard work of putting their lives in the front line, like Stella Nyanzi, who we draw a lot of strength from in this convening and planning this convening, like the activists in Camps Bay who've occupied the home and are marking and challenging this idea of who gets to rest. How do we rest? How do we heal? How do we enjoy the spaces that we have been structurally excluded from on the basis of structurally violent systems of race gender, class. And then to hear Lance, to bring us back to the part of this project, which is about questions, about bringing us to question ourselves, question our ideas. It's about consciousness, bringing us back to how do we build consciousness and bringing us into the space where we invoke memory and we return back to ourselves to listen to the beat of our hearts and the air in our lungs to inform our questions of where are we going? What is our orientation? What do we really want to achieve? And what is this work really going towards? So I want to just say that it's a beautiful day and I cannot add any more, but to say that I'm inspired and I'm moved and deeply emotional. I also want to deeply appreciate Philippa to bringing us to her beautiful song, her beautiful words, her beautiful way of thinking about the future, her beautiful call to understand the histories of Africa from the maps to the languages to the historical figures that should and continue to inspire us and to also bring in the poem that asks us to become the authority of our knowledge to come back to who we are. I want to really say that we were intentional 
in this process about thinking of who we invite, who our speakers are. We were intentional about our process. We were intentional about our pedagogy. I feel overwhelmingly joyous. This process has come alive, even though it had to shift to a virtual space, that we have been collectively brave with our collective rage and with the question of where is this revolution going to happen? And how do we bring about this revolution? And how do we really work with each other to achieve the goal of health for all? Thank you. I now hand over to my co-convener and friend and inspiration, Lance. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Anaz. I'm just going to do the final thank yous and affirm and thank everyone for just being part of the space and for the reception that we've received for organizing this event and for the continued support and people feeling deeply connected to the space. I really want to thank all of you and everyone that has been in absentia, that has been part of this journey, embracing Shanaz, myself and Kinse as people who are really thinking through how to curate and create space for these conversations. Thanks for your meaningful contribution and for making such beautiful inputs and journeying along with us. A special thanks to Philippa for her amazing invitation to place and the grounding of the convening in very remarkable ways. There aren't enough words to thank you. We humbly thank our facilitators, Koi, Leticia, and Tanya, for holding our panelists, for moderating and facilitating beautiful conversations. To Alalwani, Faisal, Hannah, Jean-Paul, Carla, Pascal, Irene, Simukai, Jessica, Masana, as well as people who we invited and was meant to be part of us but couldn't be, Floretta Bunzaya, Selanyanzi, Say Imbabula, Sylvia Tamale, and for being part of our process offering really robust conversations with zeal and veracity. And a special warm thank you to our amazing Tanya from the Atlantic for her support and holding us. Many times in panic, Tanya would really just ground us and help us navigate. And we've never thought that being aligned to the Atlantic Institute based at Oxford would be such a remarkable space to work with and partnership to do this work with so much integrity. So we thank Tanya for her contribution and for her friendship and being a confidant throughout this process. A warm and special thank you to Professor Asha George for her contributions, for her inputs throughout. And thank you to the Atlantic team, David and Daniel and Sophie. Thank you to Sitle, who's doing our rapporteuring work, Kwanele, for developing the event's website and for tracking the event on social media. And then thank you to our broader team and our collective for their contributions in various ways, for note-taking, Mackenzie Hadebe, Kenneth Munge, Okiki, Salma, Kefi, there's so many, Jean-Paul, Asha, Sibosiso, Marsha, Leanne, Khadija, Crystal, Bongani, Lucy Jolson, Desiree Pass, Michelle de Jong, and thank you so much for everyone. A very special thank you to Ravi Ram for taking calls from Shanaz and suggesting so many different amazing people for our panel. And that's where I close and just say a deep, 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 warm gratitude to everyone.
Thank you so much, Lunch and Sanaz. Thank you for making the space possible for your provocations, for your framings. We've done it. We've done it, team. We've done it, colleagues. We've done it, friends. It's the end of day three. Take care, everybody. Farewell until next time. Goodbye. Thank you. Salani Gashay.